2 Corinthians chapter 2. So I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. For if I cause you grief, who will make me glad? Certainly not someone I have grieved. That is why I wrote to you as I did, so that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me greatest joy. Surely you all know that my joy comes from your being joyful. I wrote that letter in great anguish, with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. I'm not overstating it when I say that the man who caused me all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to forgive him and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit, so that Satan will not outsmart us. For we are familiar with his evil schemes. When I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened a door of opportunity for me. But I had no peace of mind, because my dear brother Titus hadn't yet arrived with a report from you. So I said goodbye and went on to Macedonia to find him. But thank God, he made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. Who is adequate for such a task as this? You see, we are not like the many peddlers who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, One of the questions that you'll keep being challenged with is, how do you measure the effectiveness of a ministry? It's both a resource question and a personal question. Resources, because the Lord, for his own purposes, has given us limited resources, and so we want to optimise them for the glory of his name. But it's also personal because we want to know whether we and the churches we're in and the people that we love are being effective. But how do you measure it? Even though we know that it's not the best form of measurement, we measure effectiveness normally by what can be seen and what can be measured. Things like the prominence of the leader, the numbers of people who attend our congregational life, the numbers of conversions, the numbers of church plants, the giving, 
or the number of downloads from your website. But my question is, what happens when, by whatever measure you use, a ministry seems to be underperforming? If it comes to, if you come to the conclusion that a ministry is underperforming, if it's us that are engaged in the ministry or people we love, we tend to look around for extenuating or forgivable circumstances. There's been a bereavement in the family, there's burnout, there's demographic change in the area, the soil is just so hard. And when we can come up with those reasons, it gives us licence to change the goalposts of our assessment. At least they're being faithful in their situation. And if you have ever experienced that sort of feeling where you think, I'm not as effective as I should have been, you will want people to be generous to you. But other people, when they hear of these responses, sometimes will sneer and say, that is just an excuse for ineffectiveness. And so how do you assess a ministry? How do you assess how you should respond when you've assessed a ministry? Let's be clear. Every one of us comes to assess a situation with our own dispositions. And our dispositions arise from all sorts of sources. That is our own experiences, our understandings of equity and justice, our understanding of how the world works, our personalities, our conceptions about whether we will succeed and our expectations of what this ministry should be doing as well. All of those things shape our dispositions. But this morning, and in fact this whole Mission Awareness Week, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's ministry from 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and learn about him and learn from him about assessing and about living the outcomes of ministry. And at first look, Paul's ministry in Corinth is not a pretty sight. He opens his letter in chapter 1 rehearsing the hardships of his ministry, hardships that were so severe that he despaired even of his life. How do you respond to that? What would you think of a Christian leader who descended to that level of disarray. And then he has to defend his integrity as he promised to come to the Corinthians and yet changed his plans. Is that unreliability a mark of great ministry? It seems his reputation is so battered that Paul can't even assume but has to argue for the integrity of his motives. It's for your sakes that I didn't come. It wasn't just because of my own ease. And in the chapter that Peter just read to us this morning, did perhaps Paul overreach in pastoring and muck up the pastoral advice? Because it seems that there was a moral problem in Corinth and he wrote to the congregation, as he rightly should, to punish that immoral person for the sake of repentance. And now, though, the congregation has a settled and lasting posture towards that sinner of punishment and exclusion. And so Paul now has to write to ask that forgiveness be the the mark of their relationship with him. And even with this tarnished reputation that he seems to have, the apostle asks them to change their behaviour because he has forgiven the sinner. And finally in verses 12 and 13, Paul has that wonderful opportunity in northern Turkey to preach Christ 
a door has been opened for the gospel in Troas. But because he has no peace of mind, he leaves that opportunity behind and travels on to Macedonia. How do you assess a ministry such as this? One where the leader seems so emotionally fragile, where the congregation he planted seems to question his very motives, and where confronted with these great gospel opportunities in Troas, he turns his back on them. Now, we know it's the Apostle Paul that we're dealing with here, and so rightly we've got to say there are mitigating factors, there's something that's going to happen. But by the standards we use to measure ministry effectiveness, Paul would not pass. And so what are the extenuating and forgivable circumstances that explain Paul's actions? And so as we listen in, as we read 2 Corinthians, we'll learn about his gospel ministry, we'll learn how to assess it and how we should respond. And it's in that last paragraph of chapter 2 that we actually get the answer, or at least the beginning of the answer. In fact, that last paragraph of chapter 2 acts as the bridge between his explanation about what has happened, and he said it so succinctly and so profoundly and so deeply, so many things going on, and a section that runs from chapter 2, verse 14, right through to the end of chapter 7, which is the glory of the new covenant. And as we read these chapters over this week, what we will see is some of the most personal and some of the most self-exposing words that have ever been penned by the Apostle. So our question this morning is, how could this ministry of the Apostle Paul with all its seeming presenting failures, possibly be an acceptable ministry, let alone a valuable ministry. As I read it, to be honest with you, I think if I was in the Apostle's situation and I had just put the full stop after verse 13, I would want to convince people to assess me on a different basis to what we normally do. I would wonder how I could possibly live with myself with the outcomes that seem to be going on. And I would wonder how I could save this ministry that seems to be heading south so fast. Maybe these thoughts also went through the Apostle's mind. I have no idea of knowing. But one thing I do know, my questions are not even picked up or considered by the Apostle. They are not his focus at all. And that teaches us something, doesn't it? It teaches me something. Because after all the negatives that are so profound that are in these first two chapters that take us up to the end of verse 13, comes at the beginning of verse 14 that very loud but, but, despite all of this, but, now there is a different conclusion, but, Thanks be to God. I don't think I would ever have penned that. And that is important for us to hear. No matter what is occurring, the Christian life has to be one of thankfulness. Because in fact the wrath of God is coming upon those people that keep receiving all the good things of God and never say thank you to God. It is right for those who are owned by Jesus to consider all that he has done for us. Brain psychologists in our day tell us that negative stories 
have four times more impact and are four times stronger than positive ones. And so the good things that God is doing in our lives so often get forgotten because of the bad things that are running around in our head. But that is not what the Apostle is saying here. He is not saying, despite all of these things, there are some good things, so let's focus on that. Let's be thankful for what we've got. No, Paul looks at all that that has happened in Corinth. He looks it straight in the eye. He sees reality for what it is. He doesn't hide from what has occurred. He calls a spade a spade and declares in the midst of all of that, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. I wish I could say that. To be so sure of the sovereign control of God that you know that everything is good. Like Calvin, I'm a compatibilist and I know that God works his works and will cause his plans to flourish but I also know I work alongside him. And so I think if I fail in my task, then God will do his own work, but do it through a different way than me. But that is not what the Apostle Paul says here. In and through Christ at work in him, despite all that is happening and despite all the appearances and appearances that scream the opposite, God is always at work through Paul to spread the knowledge of Christ and to spread it everywhere. Many of you will know the image that the Apostle is drawing on. It is the image of the victorious Roman general who returns to Rome with his caravan and as he comes into the city, there is the triumphal procession of victory. As the caravan comes in, as the general comes in, there is the incense which smells of victory, that fragrance of victory everywhere. There is the cheering of success and all of those that are captured and enslaved follow behind as trophies and tokens of the victory. Trailing behind are those who were once rulers of kingdoms, now shackled and mocked. Their plight just adds to the triumph of the victorious general. And this is such an apt illustration. Christ is victorious, always victorious. And Paul, even with his victories in his distresses and all of his actions, is not the focus. He is there at the back of the procession, contributing to the celebration of the victory of Christ. Don't look at me. Christ is victorious. And continuing that image of smell, that fragrance of victory of the knowledge of God being spread everywhere, Now we hear of the aroma that comes from the Apostle Paul. That fragrant message of the knowledge of God is preached by the Apostle Paul and that very same message that he preaches smells differently to those who hear it from him. To some, it's the fragrance of life and to others, the stench of death to those who hear and receive it and accept it and embrace the gracious salvation of Jesus, it is life itself. And to those who reject Paul's message in their nostrils, it's the stench of death. 
the very same aroma, the very same words, two different responses. Over the years, I've spent time with several women who have been widowed unexpectedly. And what surprises me is there is a common thing that they say about smell, and that is how powerful smell is. Each of them, in their own way, have spoken of their husband's aftershave. While they were alive, these women barely noticed it. But when their husband was gone, they missed that smell around the house and they longed so much to smell it again, that sweet aroma of their beloved. But then they speak of the heartbreak when they smell that aftershave on another person because it reminds them of what they can never have back again. Same aroma, completely different responses. And that is what the gospel message of the Apostle Paul achieved. To some life and to others death. You cannot measure a ministry by whether people accept it or not. God is always victorious. Christ is victorious. The fragrance of the gospel goes out, but it is received differently by people. Life to some and the confirmation of judgment to others. And who is up to that task of taking that life-giving message, proclaiming it with two fundamentally different responses? transferring the fragrance of Christ into the life of others. And knowing the gravity of that task, Paul asked the question, who is equal to such a task? Is it that he is just so worn out that he doesn't know whether he is up to it or not? No, he knows the answer. Chapter 3, verse 5, he is up to it because his competency comes from Christ. He knows he has been sent from God. And this is the Apostle Paul's accurate understanding of his place and of his position, that Christ always leads in triumph and Paul is always doing the work of Christ. But 2,000 years later, in MLH, knowing that God leads Paul in triumphal procession and through that the Apostle spreads the aroma of Christ everywhere, everywhere, what do we do? Well, friends... Know that Paul is our apostle. He is the unambiguous fragrance of the victory of God. We must not depart from him. There is no other fragrance that is better than the fragrance that he has spread. And despite the pressures to compromise or water down what the apostle says, do not be intimidated. That is something that Izzy Falau got very right. We must hear and preach the words of the Apostle. But what about the assessment of ministries, of our ministries? All true ministries are ministries of the new covenant, empowered and enlivened by our gracious good God. And the ministry of the new covenant can only be accomplished by the work of God. Knowing that great truth, though, can lead us to a number of errors in the way we assess ministries. And this is where your own personal dispositions and mine need to be examined and challenged and changed when appropriate. Because for some of us, the new covenant work of God 
permits us to lean on, God will bring about his purposes. That is true. But you know it is only a small step then to laziness, to not accepting responsibility for our inattentiveness or our neglect of our ministry or to act for our comfort. Read in this letter how the apostle agonises over the flock and strives to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. The new covenant is too grand not to be so actively deployed. We sang the hymn, My Advocate, earlier before the throne of God. We all sang it with such gusto. How can you be half-hearted? How can you just say, oh, at least I've been faithful? We actually need to see what the Apostle does. Throw yourself into the ministry that is before us. So if your disposition is to say, I'm a Calvinist, God will do everything, it doesn't matter, repent from that. Or some of us have that disposition which is to keep assessing everything, to squeeze every ounce, or in your generation, every gram of efficiency out of the days that we have so that there is no room for change in circumstance, no room for our relational cares to take priority over our tasks. Remember that the new covenant is God's gift to us and he enacts it in the lives of people the way that he wants despite our failings. We think we know what is best, but God always knows what is best. We need to do what seems to be best and also recognise that God superintends everything to lead in triumphal procession to bring about his purposes. But in all, thanks be to God, who despite appearances, despite our strengths and weaknesses, always leads us, as the signs and tokens and trophies of his victory in triumphal procession. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of our Apostle. Please let us not domesticate him, but proclaim him loudly, because he is the fragrance that spreads everywhere. And we ask you, Heavenly Father, that you would give us the mind that assesses ministries by the new covenant and not by inferior means. Amen.